Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. really come to the next level of my blues guitar playing oh yeah why's that i purchased my first pair of undershirts oh like like the tank top ones or like a white undershirt like the tank top ones oh okay. like they're ripped they're ripped and everything oh man all right (laughs) wow congratulations Thank you. Um, granted, granted, they are. I, I, I do not like the white ones. I did get colored ones, uh, but it really, I've, I've, I've never owned a tank top. I don't think you, Zan. You're from Florida. How have you never owned a tank top? I am very self conscious of my arms. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's fair. Um. I am. I am someone that. I guess that's not entirely true. I did wear uh, a unitard when I was on rowing. I think there must have been like certain uniforms for sports I must have worn that had like a tank top type configuration, like maybe for cross country. Okay. But I've never, aside from swimming, I've never done much for arm workouts. Mm. So I've just I've just always done T-shirts, even at the beach. Like I I just have farmer's tan. Uh, uh, OK, yeah, you get the sleeves you know? and everything. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm. I, I take my shirt off to swim and that's kind <laughs> of it. I just okay. uh, th- this is this is me taking a really big step where one, I'm trying to uh to to get in shape post grad school and trying to right uh you know g- give give myself something to aspire to uh, okay and and also like I I kind of want to get more into layering and like having a having a button up shirt but not you know being um too slutty you know mm, yeah you got something like, underneath you're not just showing. yeah like I, you know what honestly it's it's the Laura Dern thing I just uh, yeah I I wanna I wanna have the 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 blue the blue tank top underneath with a mostly unbuttoned buttoned up shirt that is also tucked in to oh, the, the pants. Ooh, you know? okay. Getting fashionable with it. Nice. Yeah, nice. like that that's what that's what I want to do with it. Cause because hmm. also I wear I wear a necklace quite a lot too. And you get to show it off, yeah. Yeah, ne- necklace is kind of hard to do with a button with a collared shirt sometimes. That is true. Yeah. I t- see I I I don't love compression like uh, undershirts. It's mostly because they always just like squeeze me in parts that just are not flat. Yeah, no, th- this and is, it's yeah, it's, like, it's not like uh, compression. It's like, yeah, like or like any of those yeah. tank tops that are like the rib. Like I feel like an undershirt has just never fit right. So I'm always like, I can't. I don't know yeah. about this. I used to wear them when I was younger. 
in, yeah. and like especially the summertime when I was like, this is appropriate clothing to wear with mm-hmm, shorts mm-hmm. and just walk around in. Now oh I'm like, oh my god, you were little Tony <sighs> Soprano walking around in your undershirt. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were black ones. They weren't white, but yeah. Okay. I mean, okay. It doesn't make sure, it much better. Sure. Well, my I think I think my fashion has elevated since since yeah. I was in high school onward. But it's, like it's it's, it's tough, tough with 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 completely sleeveless for guys. Uh, you know, because like yeah. you look like you're trying to do the Wolverine thing sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and it just doesn't work because you're we're, we we can't all be Hugh Jackman. Right, cannot all be Hugh Jackman. That's true. I I mean, like, I always thought Static Shock, when he revamped Mm. his look at one point to, like, where he could take his jacket off and he had the black tank top, I thought that Mm. was cool, but also that was a cartoon. That is a cartoon. This is true. I mean, I I don't know. I like a sleeveless shirt. Like, I have a few that fit well, and I'm like, Mm. yeah, this this is a look. Like, this is my summer, like, this is the the exercise outfit. Or the, like, I can wear this and a shirt on the top, you know? That's what I want to have. I want to get confident, because the other problem is now when I wear it, I have blindingly white shoulders. Uh, you just gotta so go out in that sun, get some tan. I, I I really do. I have to get my confidence up to start uh, jogging without a shirt on. I think ah, to kind of even mm, it out. Okay. Um, but or just go tan. But sure, that works too. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> <laughs> Although you, I guess you do have neighbors and don't have a yard, so in a, or you have a shared yard, so I guess yeah. you kind of have to just. Oh, you have the deck. You can just go. You know. I don't know. That is true. You be, I do, you I get do have a deck. I just, <laughs> I'm not, I don't know why. I, I I will tan on the beach. I, And I think I did a little bit when we were in lockdown in Italy. Like, I would just lie outside for a while, like, trying yeah. to get some vitamin D. Because yeah. we couldn't go God outside. knows we needed it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was getting, getting a little, uh, ooh, yeah. uh, getting a little depressed there without any sunlight. Yeah, I think we are playing Jimmy, Jimmy Buffett, too. So it really, it really yeah, set a Yeah, really mood. trying to, <laughs> to, to, to get on island time uh, yeah. during COVID. <laughs> uh but yeah no so i it was hot yesterday uh i have been trying to teach myself vestipole which i know is a super easy melody but because i never taught myself uh um finger picking properly Mm. it is incredibly difficult for me to learn now Uh, at this point gotcha i feel that so but you know i threw on my undershirt and jeans and just sat there with my acoustic guitar and suddenly mm, blues legend it started it started working the magic started happening that's I started, it oh it's all you started needed. getting that that vestipole going oh man that's all you really needed was the outfit and it pulled it all together who knew i think so See, it's yeah, not a, it's I, not about talent it's about look clearly oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah well, but it was it was kind of like learning a new language, I think. Like yeah. having having to relearn the instrument, relearn your style. Mm. I mean, music is a language mm-hmm, in a way. Mm-hmm. Or I yeah. guess learning music is like learning a language in that sense. Mhm. Mhm. Uh I think that does help us segue into what yes. we wanted to talk <laughs> about today. Uh so what do we have here in the museum? This looks like something that would have been very difficult to get. Yeah, well, I actually just, you know, doing some some 
tangling, you know, got to talk to different people, had to figure out how we were going to pull this off. Schmoozing, thank you. I'm slacking on the one word that my professor uses all the time with me. <laughs> I schmoozed my way in to actually getting on loan uh, the, the Linen Book of Zagreb, which mm. is a, it's the longest Etruscan text that we actually have to date, which oh. is uh, really interesting. And a- actually, funny story, which we'll probably get into, it's all thanks to a weird antiquing find. Okay. <laughs> As you can see, it's it's not necessarily piled like a book, though. It is a bunch of these strips with, if we can get a bit closer here, too, different carvings or, or writings on it that look similar to letters or almost rune-like in this sense. Mm-hmm. And what this actually is is, is the Etruscan language written down. At least scholars have found it to be so. But it has a very crazy story that... Um, you know, it, it it leads into a few different twists and turns, but in, re- in all honesty, tells a very interesting tale of how one can figure out how to decode a language without anybody speaking it. Um, right, because that's, that's a pretty... This is something I, I wonder about a lot, because languages it can, can be hard enough to understand, uh, even if there are people that still speak them, and... Mm-hmm. Especially now, there's a lot of movements to revive languages that have largely disappeared as, you know, either a result of colonization, globalization, um, you know, or just the the way that our our education system, at least for the last couple of centuries, has somewhat relied on everyone speaking just a handful of languages. Yeah. Like... I'm 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 kind of amazed sometimes that we're ever able to put together languages that are so far back in history and there are no contemporary languages that are connected to them. Like because mm, yeah. we've we've talked quite a bit about languages before, but stuff like Latin, you know, even though Latin is not a living language in the sense that, you know, you you're it's what uh you would grow up speaking if you grew up in rome you but there's enough romance languages there are enough languages around that are derived from latin there are and then of course throughout the middle ages after the fall of the roman empire latin was a scholarly language right Um, right and in sort of a similar way to uh, Hebrew, where uh, Jews didn't really, you know, basically after uh, the, the Romans took over, Hebrew was not a, it basically fell out of um, the, the, the sort of common parlance. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you sort of had your uh, your derivative languages that really were a mix of wherever the diaspora went. We talked about right. the, the Sephardim had Ladino, which is basically a Romance language, and Ashkenazim have Yiddish, which is basically a Germanic language. That's uh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, obviously there are some words that are the same as Hebrew, and they are written with Hebrew script and letters, uh, but um, Hebrew really 
remained a sacred language until 1947. Oh, <laughs> which is huh. which is kind of crazy. Like just you know when it was decided that that would be the language of Israel. Yeah, like, Hebrew as a as a language that you would feasibly speak in a non-religious setting only came into existence with modern Zionism hmm. uh, where the it, it wasn't a dead language because people still read it and and spoke it in right. religious ceremonies obviously uh, but but similar to Latin it was an extra thing it had an it it had almost like another level of sacredness to it because you wouldn't you wouldn't use it for your everyday dealings um and i i think there are still sects of judaism today that sort of consider hebrew almost too sacred uh mm. and and i think that was the attitude prior to israel was that hebrew was for talking to god Yiddish is for, you know, you know, just just talking to people. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So so that. for something like Etruscan, that's not really a language I even really think of as like something we have access to that seems so right. far back in history. Are there any languages that are still around that are related to Etruscan? Well, it's funny you actually say this because it's actually it's a really interesting uh history in terms of how it happens but technically the only similar languages we would have are like latin and greek and it's oh. and more ancient greek i should say because archaic greek, arch yeah. yeah is that actually the term for it archaic greek um or is that a curiosity this is me just not knowing uh i i believe so yeah huh. that that is because modern greek while there's a lot of the same letters, right? Yeah, there, not there, the there's no. there's some some differences in the actual language. It's uh, like dinosaur names are, uh, even though they are Greek, they are archaic hmm. Greek. They are not mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, no, not contemporary Greek. Not right? not modern Greek. Although uh, my my friend Angela has uh, remarked before that. Uh, when we had um, <laughs> Latin Forum, which in high school, did, did you have Latin Forum for your school? What is that? Latin Forum is like um, a bunch of different schools with Latin clubs and Latin classes get together and compete. Ah, I was uh, not smart enough for these, Zan, so I didn't. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, well, I did not I take Latin. <laughs> I wasn't really either. I look. I, I I don't know if this is if I've ever brought this up. I am actually I actually have a uh, first place state championship from Latin Forum. <laughs> what? Uh, oh, from wow. the state of Florida. I didn't go on to nationals, but I did uh. have first in state in sculpture. Because huh. <laughs> there was an there was an <laughs> art division oh there you go <laughs> but wow. you could you could compete in things that were actually uh you know uh, th there there's a uh, a latin uh a latin themed version of jeopardy called kertamen um <laughs> that you could play uh oh, with with buzzers and everything uh wow. there's there were like there was competitive quiz taking but Angela would do really well and they would always send her in to do Greek, the Greek derivatives mm, test, okay. which for her was so easy because she is Greek and speaks Greek. Uh, uh, wow. Well, yeah. Advantage. But whatever. and so 
Uh, yeah. So she, it was it was kind of like a uh, it was a it was a little bit of an advantage. But hey, sure. you know, she uh, she she won those. She brought home the glory for our mm-hmm. high school. You Absolutely, know? that's what that's what matters, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is it is it's very similar in these ways, and it's also just because these cultures were actually interacting with one another. Right. Uh, and but I'll, I'll get into some more further examples as like I can maybe break into this story because I think that kind of gives a better uh, foundation for why. Yeah. Because there's actually some words in our own language for English that have origin in early Etruscan words as well and then into roman and that tends to be why we even have them okay today. are they grape based olive oil based no no like in i would i mean maybe honestly there might be some there one of the main ones is actually person which oh, comes from persu yeah persu meaning mask in etruscan which also also ends up in latin as well it's somewhere early roman oh, i don't remember but that's and that's an that technically can translate the same way so, so pretty fast, oh, or it's so how we the, get the, it's how we get our modern sense. Very very Billy person. Joel. Yeah, the person is the mask. Yeah, it's kind of wild, actually. Uh, but somebody it, stop these Etruscans. Gotta stop these Etruscans. Well, here's another somebody crazy part too. Stop. Let's them. let's take a closer look at the at the um at the at the script here on the wall. And if you yes. see these letters, they they look. Like I said they look kind of like runes, and they do read um I believe from right to left. And it's actually laid out in these 12 column um, reading sections and each column is a page or thought Mm -hmm. to be a page. We don't actually know where this starts. And the the actually, we only have about 230 lines of text with 1200 legible words at the moment. Linguists have actually been uh, uncovering the mystery for like decades and really been uh, moving into this. And so there could have been an update. I have no idea. And like yesterday, you know, but this is something that they've been working on for a while, but it is dated to be back uh, from 250 BCE. And it's actually because of certain local gods mentioned in the text. And they were actually able to locate its origin to Tuscany near uh, Lake Trasimeno. Trusimano, hmm. which had four major Etruscan cities located there, because Etruscan also comes from. I mean, we get the we get the term Etruscan because of like, and how we get Tuscany is from that, which is interesting, mm-hmm. or at least how the Italian tribes later on would go on to name it. But they would have been in that area and then eventually moved all throughout the Italian peninsula into Sardinia and Sicily and uh, Greece, but mostly just trading and talking with other peoples there it was one of the things when i went to the uh our archaeology museum in Cagliari in in sardinia they have a ton of etruscan artifacts and greek artifacts and it's actually because since Cagliari was on the port and a major city for like a long long right, time yeah. they actually interacted a lot with etruscans and greeks as well so there was always just this tons of crossover which probably had an effect on the languages too that ended up happening in sardinia with all the different dialects around the island um, but moving away from that as an aside, as I'm getting back mm-hmm. to these letters here, right? they're actually, if you look at them and in your mind flip them around, like mirror it essentially or reflect okay. it, it actually looks similar to our ABCs. Whoa. And that's because it's... Are the you know it's said that and most mostly true that our writing system is based or derived from the Phoenicians and that it was thought that it would go from the Phoenicians to the Greeks then to the Romans and that's how we get ours our letters at least. Mm-hmm. But actually now there's a case that there's a, the missing link that's been there was actually the Etruscans 
who would have translated it over to the Romans when they sort of gobbled oh. them back up into the empire. So these huh. letters are actually similar. That doesn't mean that they read the same, but they're similar to what ours look like now, which is pretty hmm. wild in that way. Um, but then there's also archaeological evidence of Etruscan and Greek interactions that dated even before the Romans. So there was already this cultural exchange of words happening before the Romans even really figured out what they were doing, which I think mm-hmm. is pretty crazy. And one of the things that's a bit stressful, actually, mm-hmm. and it would have been amazing if we could find this, this is like becoming my new library of Alexandria, was that the last known speaker was uh, Emperor Claudius of ancient Rome, who actually oh. wrote, he, he wrote down most of the translations in a dictionary and would actually have been the key to fully understanding this language. Mm-hmm. But we don't know where it is. We uh, don't know where it is. Mm, okay. Yeah, so... So Claudius. That Yeah. Feels, okay, so there... So presumably there were still speakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, well, actually, this was considered a pretty... Like, they the Romans really respected the language and borrowed a lot from the language. Latin and Etruscan are actually really similar in certain things and even in the grammar. And towards the end of the Etruscans' reign and what they were doing, and even how their as their language develops to as far as we know, they were dropping letters and different uh, pronunciations. And in fact, the accent that's in the writing changed. We, we know this as that, that mm-hmm. it changed over time from being a heavier accent in the beginning of when they pronounce things to then dropping yeah. that and moving towards the the end i and and i'll admit too i'm not somebody that knows a lot about syntax and specifics of linguistics and how any of it works in terms of Mm -hmm. what that means but i do think it's interesting that a lot of the way that the latin pronunciations were happening you you can actually see that going on in what was translated with the etruscan ones yeah i i guess that does that does square a little bit with some of my knowledge of uh the the uh the origins of latin one of the things that my teacher would talk about was that latin was spoken for a very long time before it was written so there you, you do you do you can kind of account for a lot of the the inconsistencies of uh verb derivatives uh throughout the language yeah where, you know um why you need so many charts to try and uh yeah to, to try when, and form sentences just that yeah there's there's this whole uh language that then had to be uh adapted mm-hmm. to script yeah and it's it's thought to be that something maybe similar would have happened here with the etruscan one as well that it could actually mm-hmm. be much older and date it back to different like indo-european languages although we have no idea um, mm-hmm. But if, if I may, too, not to derail, but I want to come back um, to this part and specifically like how they figured out how to translate it from this. Yeah. But I can't do that without necessarily telling us all the story of how they even found this to begin with. And mm-hmm. if you'll humor me for a moment, I have to... I want to go back to the thing that I said that this is all thanks to a weird antiquing find because it quite literally yeah, is. Yeah, th- this, this wasn't another uh, Hobby Lobby scenario. This was not a Hobby Lobby scenario. This was a, you know, 19th century 
uh, study abroad type situation or a study abroad and also taking a souvenir home situation where a, <laughs> oh, okay so so not that much better than no not much better at all but it was um, it wasn't wait till you find out what it for, was it wasn't not, not not stealing it for a bible museum at least I guess. no not stealing it for a bible museum stealing it for one's apartment uh, well, maybe not stealing it. Probably lowball, getting a lowball price for. It. Wait till you see what this is, because it's okay, it's pretty okay, messed yeah, up. Yeah. But anyway, let's, let's see so let's let's get into it. So, this low-ranking official who was Croatian in the Hungarian royal chancellery, named mm-hmm. Mi- Mihalo Barak, okay. resigned from his military service one day, and then just decided he was going to travel the world with a major focus on visiting Egypt. That was like his number one destination. You know, so mm-hmm. he's super excited. Just retired. He's probably like, you know, out partying, having some drinks, going to see the pyramids. Mm-hmm. Ends up in uh, Alexandria, where he ends up, you know, he's, he's going home. I think he's going, you know, he wants to go back. So he says, I want to buy a souvenir to take home. Now, mm-hmm. take a guess what he bought. This uh, is 1848, by the way. Ah, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, he's in Egypt. Um, hmm. Well, uh... A, a little keychain with a pyramid on it, mm, or mm. Uh, a uh, a little plaster box with Anubis. Okay, all good suggestions. Um, it's not that though. He actually bought a sarcophagus in Alexandria oh. with get this. It had a real mummy inside too. They just so, let you do anything just, back then. Didn't just, they? Yeah, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> This I want to make this clear. I'm I, I'm making jokes out of the absurdity of the situation. It's actually pretty terrible, yeah. and this whole thing is just incredibly disturbing when one thinks mm-hmm. about the display of human remains, which I think we've talked about a few times, and the ethics behind that. Um, so yeah, this is actually yeah, it, it guess, is serious, guess, but it is also I guess ridiculous. You, I guess you can you kind of have to laugh at a certain point because it's <sighs> it gets worse. <laughs> It gets, yeah. Well, okay. All right. So, so he he's not. You know, could, could, but just coming back is like. So what did you bring home? You brought what? Oh yeah. So <laughs> he it was like going bigger. I guess go bigger, go home. Quite literally, decided that this would be a really cool thing to put in his um, Vienna apartment. You know, or apartment in Vienna. He actually displayed the sarcophagus in the corner of his sitting room. And eventually, he took out the, he took um off the linen dressings that were covering the mummy and and put it in its own display as well. What? So he had both of these things just none, in his sitting of, room. None of this would make me want to sit in this room. Are you no, I don't think many me? people did. I don't think many keep people me did. out. Yeah, it's very creepy and weird, and ugh, it's just it's very odd. And but here's the thing though, Barrack actually never just noticed that the linen dressings had inscriptions written all over them. He just never. I guess I guess he wasn't really paying attention. It doesn't really surprise me though, given that mm-hmm. you know he's displaying this in his house. Anyway, so the mummy remained in his home until he died in 1859, to which it passed mm-hmm. to his brother, and he uh, <laughs> did not want it. Which I don't blame yeah. him because what? What? <laughs> what are you gonna do with it? It's like hey, you know, you have this sarcophagus that you have to take now, and he's like, I don't want that in my house. I'm okay. So he he actually sends it to the Archaeological <laughs> Museum of Zagreb. The first good idea that has come up. Yeah, he actually donates it to the museum because he says <laughs> this is probably a better place. But I think he's just like, I do not want this. What do I do? You know, why why would I want to put this in my house? Right. Um, you know, so th- thankfully, right? 
But it's here, though, that German uh, Egyptologist Heinrich Bruch noticed the text on the dressings and then began studying them. So he actually believed that these were Egyptian hieroglyphs. But um, and no, no further research was done or conducted on them okay, uh, on yeah. these writings until 1877. What year is this? So this is still oh, 1859. Not... Oh, okay, okay. And then it's 1877 where he starts conversing with this explorer and writer Richard Burton about yeah. runes. This is like a separate thing. He's just talking about runes one day, and then mm -hmm. uh, Bruch actually noticed that the linen writings were not glyphs but more rune-like and therefore not Egyptian. And yeah. so they realize the importance of these and how this text, this is definitely a big discovery and this, is a, this text is a big deal, but they actually assumed that it was the Egyptian Book of the Dead in Old Arabic and they kind of just closed the case on it. Okay. So in 1891, though, the wrappings get transported to Vienna and were examined by linguist Jacob Kral, who was an expert on the Coptic language. Yes. And suspected that these writings were of Coptic, Libyan, or Carian origin. But because of his Kral's research and, ex and linguistic expertise, he actually was the first to notice that the writing was of Etruscan descent. And it was due to his work that the writings on the, the, uh, the linen wraps constituted a manuscript written in the Etruscan language. Huh. And so because of this discovery, they thought that the mummy in the sarcophagus was actually of Etruscan descent. But it actually turned out, again, this is just how much no one was doing any thorough digging into the sarcophagus, that mm -hmm. a papyrus like, letter was found with her remains, and it indicated that which she was Egyptian and named Nessi Hansu, the wife of Pahar Hansu, a tailor from Thebes. Mm -hmm. So it actually had all their information okay. in there, which is humanizing in that way, right. but also yeah. even makes the story of them displaying it worse. Yeah, and I yeah. guess uh, I guess useful if you uh, yeah. you know wind up in someone's parlor, you can at least have it written on you what you did. When you <laughs> yeah, were alive. apparently good tailors, famous tailors. But uh, well, that and also in it's one of these situations that it actually kind of helped narrow down this search. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of weird origin story of how we came upon this text, and sort of in wrapping up what we're looking at on my end at least. Um, yeah. It's in going back to the whole thing with Claudius and not having that dictionary. Ling the way linguists had to figure out, well, how are we going to translate this and break the code was essentially just, you know, they started guessing quite mm -hmm. literally and just trying to figure out what it was and yeah. like how it could be similar and what words would be similar. They, because this actually went nowhere, they started trying out different combinations of words from the texts and, and see what would work next to each other. And so much like, much like deciphering a code without a key. So this was done by actually combining different meanings and different contexts to see what would actually work. And so slow, and this takes forever, by the way. It's just, it's something that would take, it's mm -hmm. grueling. But slow, these, this actually showed the result, results and even the grammar of the language came to fruition and past tenses, vowels, and names all started to be changed over time. And um, I should also note that some of the Etruscan language itself was, was written similar to Greek. Uh, to actually oh. were the point that some Greek symbols made it into this manuscript. So this was already a bit of the key that let them crack that code to a certain extent, just not much, mm -hmm. but it gave us some sort of context of what we were looking at. So some of the symbols became repetitive because one of the things I didn't realize when deciphering an old language that you don't know what it is, 
It's really mm-hmm. to look for those like specific repetitive symbols and to work your way that way where you're looking mm, at the end okay. of sentences and saying, how many times does this show up and where does it show up? Now let's move to the next word. Where is this showing up and how many times does it show up? And then one can start to figure out how that's going to work in the context. It just takes a really long time. Yeah. So, yeah, and this is all just coming from this text that was randomly found one day. And I think that that's very wild to a certain yeah. extent um, to this point where this this has really become a massive, uh, a, ma- a major text to help decipher the Etruscan language because we actually haven't gotten as far as I think linguists would like to. So there's a lot to still know about these objects because a lot of Etruscan artifacts actually have these 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 writings the um the runes on them or rune like you know shapes on them that we have no idea what they mean and even some more recent ones were discovered um actually one off the coast uh of the greek island of lemnos but it's a different version it has different symbols than the etruscan ones but it's incredibly similar so it could potentially be a new language or a dialect so that's a thing that we still don't know but um, it's just a very fascinating kind of one of these things where it's like we're making progress on it, but mm-hmm. it has it has started. But it, and it's thanks to just those sort of that that relationship that these cultures would have had with each other, sharing language bits, because otherwise there would be pretty much no in. Yeah, I guess that's that's the uh, the thing about trying to look at like a completely dead language like that is what what is what is the hook that can give you yeah. some sort of bearing? Like it's I would crazy. have no idea where to start. I guess you would look at the repetition and stuff. Yeah. There's, yeah. I mean, like with, with, with the, with the attempted revivals of a lot of languages now, it's, um, there, there's at least some written record and stuff. And there were, yeah, exactly. There, there's stuff like Chinook jargon, which, you know, had a um y- even though that that I, I i think chinook jargon has uh I, I don't know if there's really any speakers left anymore but uh there was like a newspaper published uh mm. in the pacific northwest for a while in that language uh that Whoa. incorporated like combinations of punctuation marks to like make up for the sounds that didn't transliterate into uh english uh letters huh uh so there's there's stuff like that and there are there were people alive within living memory that could still speak it oh wow so so there's there's some type of grasp but it it's also sort of horrifying to try and think about all of the languages that existed kind of prehistorically that yeah we we don't have any way to get a hold of them without any written text or any holdout populations of people that still speak it mm, yeah it's all just kind of swallowed Gone. by by history yeah, it's it's incredibly stressful. I think it's one of those things that like I just want answers to and I kind of have to start coming to terms that I'll never get them. But right. and I think that's what that's what's so important about like preserving the languages we know now and yeah. the, hopefully and and not letting English or any monolithic language take over and actually yeah. st- I think I think um highlight 
you know, those, those, those languages. It's, it's sort of my fear with dialects in Italy at the moment, kind of becoming a not so popular thing, especially like right. Sardinian. And I've, I've talked about that a few, I think, I think before here at the, at the UCM, but that whole, this whole new thing where the, the language itself is dying out because the younger population doesn't really learn it because they all grow up speaking Italian now, whereas before, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and their grandparents really, my, my grandparents especially, would speak in dialect. But even yeah. like my mom's generation doesn't um, really speak it. They know words, but they can't make full grammatical sentences and, and right. speak to you in a dialect. And the right. dialect is a language. So it's, I guess it's, I should dial, saying dialect is wrong. It's the di- there is a dialect of Sardinian, but the Sardinian language is a language. So, mm-hmm. but it's an, and it's old. And it's just one of those things where because in, an, in Italy, when you had a nation growing, they thought of dialects as bad. And especially in the north or in the middle regions, when you have, you know, Dante's uh, Italian specifically, mm-hmm. that is the language, and everything else yeah. is sort of peasantry or you know this other kind of thing, and and we see this everywhere. So that it does, it's definitely a concerning problem, and I, I, I don't know. I just hope we can preserve them more as we have them, but also it mm-hmm. would be quite nice to have some insight into the past and to know more about those languages. Yeah, yeah, because there's. There's there's enough that's fallen out of favor just kind of organically and stuff. And then there's languages like Arabic that go back really far. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, I, I know things like like really old texts like the Ramayana uh, yeah. in India, like, you know, that that preserves language, you know, for thousands of years because you have this this text, this sacred text that stayed um, right that that has stayed with the culture um i was i was listening to something recently about uh the 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 story of the seven sisters of the the star constellation how that might predate language or or predate uh not that it predates uh, language, but that it uh the story itself predates a lot of human migration because so many different cultures all over the world have sort of the same story for those stars where uh, a hunter chases uh, seven sisters into the sky. And the reason there's only six stars is because the story has been around so long that one of the stars has moved closer to another one. And now you can't see it with the naked eye. What? That's crazy. Yeah. But the... Uh, the the story is that one of the sisters falls in love with a mortal man and comes back to Earth. But you huh. like you see this both in the old world and new world. So if this is true and this wasn't just complete coincidence that people came up with this, it would mean that that story is is older than <laughs> than human migration. That is wow. Okay, that's incredible. Yeah. Huh. But we have no idea, like, what language would that have originally been in? Right, right. Some, like, what, what proto-linguistic, like, root human language was there? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Um, but another sort of example, a big challenge, uh, it's perhaps a, you touched on it a little bit, but if we mm. come over here, oh, yeah. we have 
perhaps one of the most famous artifacts in all of the world, also on loan, questionably. <laughs> yeah. It is da, 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 the Rosetta Stone. Oh, man, like the DVDs? Uh, mm, <laughs> no, mm. I'm just kidding. It's the real Rosetta Stone. <laughs> We're not like that. <laughs> oh, uh, man. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, Babel should sponsor us, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, uh, otherwise, yeah. otherwise Rosetta Stone might come knocking on our door. They need mm. to move some DVDs. Yeah, exactly. They need to get people to learn languages in a very inefficient way. Um, but no, <laughs> this is how they, this is like the real way to learn a language. You find a stone in the desert and then you start learning from it. <laughs> a true man's way of learning language. Yes. This is this is what the liver man thinks. People, how, how you have to go and le- <laughs> learn a new language now. Can I can I say <laughs> that um, along with last week and now uh, doing a bit of research for this week? Yeah, my my YouTube uh, <laughs> algorithm is completely messed up now. I am getting oh, so no. much Joe Rogan that I do oh, not want. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you you broke the algorithm. Now they think you're you're you want to you want to open your mind and uh, mm. eat like raw like I don't even know what is what is Joe he just eats anything I guess at this point. Yeah, you're gonna have a so, don't be so open minded. Your brains fall out. Mm, true words to live by. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but anyways, so the Rosetta Stone. Yes, yes, the um, Rosetta Stone. <laughs> if you do not listen to things, uh by a certain <laughs> former Fear Factor host. <laughs> the Rosetta Stone is incredibly famous by name alone, but if you don't know, it is a stone stele or sort of a uh, a, a flat stone pillar that uh, really, the, these types of things go back to Mesopotamia. They were mm-hmm. uh, often had legal decrees on it, which is what the Rosetta Stone basically is of uh, Ptolemy the uh, from King Ptolemy V, uh, Epiphanes, uh, and uh, dated to uh, 196 BC. Uh, it's a, it's found uh, during the Napoleonic campaign in Egypt by Pierre-Francois Bouchard uh, in 1799. Hmm. So what's uh, really interesting about it is the uh, decree is in three different languages and uh, one of them was Greek and the other was Egyptian hieroglyphs. And this was very, very significant to find because up until this point, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs were, it, it was, it was just sort of unimaginable uh, what a, a way to translate them. Yeah. Uh, so unimaginable that actually quite a few historians wrote that they just weren't that they they did not um, translate to uh, not necessarily that they didn't have meaning, but uh, f- for instance, the the historian uh, Horapalan considered that they they didn't have uh sounds associated with them mm. that what you are seeing were just uh ideas and sacred symbols sort of scrawled across a surface hmm. and this was starting to come out of fashion 
like there there was more and more of an idea that uh Egyptian ancient Egyptian could be possibly translated into sentences. Uh and after the Rosetta Stone was discovered, it was pretty much confirmed, okay, this does uh Th- this this must equate to sentence structure and grammar right. to some extent. But there were still a lot of people that maintained that they didn't uh, equate to sounds, that they were just purely pictographic, that, uh, you know, you see the symbol for a hawk, and that just means an idea associated with the hawk or the hawk itself, um, mm. that there's no sound. Uh, there's, there's nothing, um, that, that they, that they didn't translate into, uh, speech. Uh, and this would come to change with, uh, the, a man who's sort of considered the, the founding father of Egyptology, Jean-Francois Champollion, Hmm. uh, which is, uh, a pretty French name. Very French. Yes. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's he's actually born in 1790, so actually nine years before the Rosetta Stone's even discovered. But uh, this this also shows you that they had the Rosetta Stone for a while before they were able to decipher the language. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Champollion, uh, you know, is is a pretty bright young boy. Uh, he speaks ancient Greek. He speaks Arabic, Latin, Coptic. Hebrew, wow. uh, he 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 knows his stuff, and uh, what what sort of happens is uh, he is sort of born just at the right time for the Egyptomania in France, and uh, this is kind of a post uh, Napoleonic thing because you know while Napoleon is in Egypt taking stuff over. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of interest in Egypt because of the things that are coming back, the archaeology that's being done. We could call a good bit of it looting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's, uh, you know, this is kind of why the Louvre to this day has a has a pretty significant uh, Egyptian artifact collection and by extent the British Museum, because the, the reason the 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 British have the Rosetta Stone, even though it was the French that discovered it, was because they defeated uh, Napoleon. Uh, yeah. Be- because they, they beat France, they just kind of yoinked the <laughs> so we're Rosetta take that. Stone. Yeah, this is ours now. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So if you, you know, if we want to talk about repatriation, the, the British got to give it back to the French first. Mm, right, it has to go in the whole line. You can't just... <laughs> Send it back to the French Nita for a few minutes. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Jeez, you what know. a mess. What a mess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So Champagnon actually uh, flip-flops a bit on this in his life, and he would actually go to some lengths later in life to cover up his incorrect opinions because uh, he also is sort of in the camp because it was the style at the time that the hieroglyphs represented ideas. They were symbols rather than what we would think of as letters. Mm, um, okay. And, but later he does really become convinced that you could start to, uh, that that we could possibly figure out how uh, 
the language was pronounced just based on the hieroglyphs. Uh, hmm. And sort of some of the things he discovers is that there are different types of hieroglyphs, uh, that there was a style for writing on papyrus that would be slightly more simplified. And then there was the really ornate versions that would be put on stone. Mm, um, right. And this is what we think of when we see the, the tombs, of the pharaohs. And the names of the pharaohs were actually kind of the starting point uh, where because you could you could locate the labels and the and the names of people, those were those were kind of the entry points, because at least because of history, there was some knowledge of the uh, of the names of some of the pharaohs. Mm -hmm. So so you could you could sort of get it that way. But what what really was lacking was the, the rest of the language. You know, how do you right, right. Where, where do you begin? Um, but then he kind of makes an interesting discovery uh, that it, it's it's sort of one of those interesting it's lying right in front of you type of things. Because hmm. remember, he speaks Coptic. <sighs> Right. Yeah. And, and 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 he says at one point in his life he would like to speak Egyptian as well as he spoke French. He really thought of this as his life's work to try and decipher this. Uh you know, his his marriage even starts to fail at one point. Oh, he God. has a lot of uh very public disputes with other uh Egyptologists, uh some of whom are quite a bit older and have been working longer than him. Uh, there's this race. He's really under the gun that he's going to get scooped, that someone else is going to figure this out before him. So what he does is he decides to look for, well, what is the oldest known language that we still have that was still spoken uh, at the time that uh, there were pharaohs and the hieroglyphs would have been in use? And what he comes to is it's Coptic. Uh, uh, yeah. And what's crazy is he doesn't even have to go all the way to Egypt. There was a Coptic <laughs> oh. Christian church in Paris. What? Oh, okay. That's convenient. <laughs> yeah. So he just, he went there and it was actually through the Coptic Christians that um, he actually was able to begin deciphering ancient Egyptian. Um, now, Coptic is not exactly that language, uh, but Coptic actually does preserve quite a bit of the language because essentially what happened is th the thing to remember is Egypt is Christianized by the Greek half of the, the Roman Empire, right? Gotcha. Mm hmm. And, and and Egypt had been under Hellenistic control for a very long time. Right. Yeah. Um, but much like other things we were talking about, the, the Ramayana um, uh, and, and really all these holy texts that uh, make it necessary for people to stick with one language for so long. You know, think about how long the Bible was only uh, available in Greek and Latin. Uh, right. You know, yeah. True. Uh, Hebrew for uh, the Torah. Uh, the the Ramayana for Hindu, uh, the 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 Quran for Muslims, uh, in in, in Arabic, um, 
all of these languages, because they're tied to uh, religion, even if it's not the language that people speak in day to day, they're considered sacred. So they're sort of held on to. Mm -hmm. Um, So what happens is the Greeks uh, have their, their, their influence over Egypt. And basically the language was transliterated into Greek characters. So basically you had the language, just it switched, uh, it switched uh, the, the alphabet it was using. Oh. And then what, what maintained it for so long was the eventual uh, conversion to Christianity, the Coptic Christians. Um, so who, you know, are, are still in Egypt today, despite Egypt being a majority Muslim. So the, the Coptic Christians in, uh, in Egypt and in Europe were kind of un, uh, and it, and it's unclear how, uh, how much they were aware of this because to this day, it's a very nationalistic pride point, uh, for a lot of, uh, Coptics, uh, mm-hmm. that, they speak the language of the pharaohs. Right, uh, yeah. But the the thing to remember is they did not typically speak this in day-to-day life. They were speaking Arabic or wh- whatever right. the, the, the local language was. But at least within the confines of the church, the language was Coptic, therefore the language of the pharaohs, of, of right. the, the, the pharaohic era of Egypt. Whoa. Um, so this language had been entirely preserved or not not entirely but similarly like closely preserved right? wow yeah i mean it's sort of in a similar yes. way that um like any of these things like greek or hebrew have gone through modifications but you could technically look at an ancient text and it would be much more recognizable than than even Middle yeah. English would be to you and me. Oh, yeah, no, we could not read Middle English, like, at all. Yeah. Which I think is kind of wild. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so fascinating. But, but, but. Isn't, that, isn't that weird? It's like, it's like Beowulf isn't yeah. as old. But if you read Beowulf in the, as, it was, uh, as it was transcribed, it is almost entirely indecipherable to two... Uh, yeah, yeah two english speakers yeah Yeah, you can thank the you can thank the french and the danes for that one in modifying Mm. english because that's how we speak now uh which Mm -hmm. is very interesting how that i mean not not directly (laughs) but in 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 reality yeah like it it is actually interesting how the after the invasions and then when france has control for a few i don't know a couple decades maybe more that the all the words that get introduced into english shift it from right. uh, where it was like more dramatic in the Saxon realm. But anyway, in yeah. terms of the time scheme, it's very interesting to me because you would think that it would take forever. Yeah. Right. Cause I, I know right. it's, 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 yeah, it's not that long. Um, yeah, but, but, but yeah, think, think about that. That doesn't feel like it's that long ago and the language is almost unrecognizable to us. Yeah. And then you have these other languages that yeah. really well preserve it in part because of, having to write things down and it is it's it's the difficult thing to 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 figure out as uh you know as as we we use we certainly value written language a lot in the west as this hallmark this 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 watershed moment of so much of civilization and because 
uh, Champignon would even, you know, go on to, you know, do work in cuneiform. I'm, oh, you know, wow. not not every single one of his theories stood the test of time, but history has confirmed a lot of what uh, he thought, huh. uh, and his his work lives on today. He, there, there were challenges to it, you know, as there are with all uh, historians, especially of his era. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the groundwork that he laid is contemporary Egyptology all over the world. So, wow. but, but a lot of this is due to the language being written down and, um, you know, we have so many cultures with endangered languages that did not have a uh, standardized writing system that that did not have alphabets in these ways, and it's um and and it makes it uh, uh difficult to you know have revivals of languages that hardly anyone speaks and and there are no. Uh, associated texts with right. them. And again, we've talked about this, that it's it's the, both have their advantages and disadvantages where writing has kind of allowed a lot of cultures to, it, 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 there, there's some sort of idea of preservation that we don't have to maintain this thing because it's, you know, it's, it's in molasses. It's, uh, you know, we've got it written down and we'll, we'll, if we forget about it, it'll be there for when we find it again. (laughs) Uh, right. And, but you know, that, that can have a loss of knowledge too. You know, all you need to do is have the library go up in flames and suddenly it's gone or, you know, you misplace a book and now you can't translate Etruscan. Uh, exactly. Exactly. It's in compared oh compared to oral traditions, uh, in so many cultures where you can maintain some uh, a, a continuity across centuries and millennia. Yeah. Just by telling telling a story and sharing knowledge verbally, where as long as there's people with breath in them, you have. You have the language and the and the stories and the lessons preserved. Yeah, you create a living memory essentially, which I think is exactly incredibly exactly. fascinating. There, well, there's there's an idea of maintenance there uh, yeah. that that is that is very different from uh, cultures that put a lot of value on writing. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it keeps yeah. it, it keeps that. You you have to quite literally preserve the language or adapt the language in the story in order to keep it remembered. Where I think if you have writing, right. there tends to be a safeguard with oh okay, well we wrote it down, so it'll be totally fine. And then again, you misplace the book or you lose the scroll or you know yeah. someone forgets how to read it, then it's a problem, mm-hmm. and then you lose all of that information. You essentially lock it, and it's mm-hmm. it's it. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely concerning. But mm-hmm. also, it, and then 
I think going forward too, it's sort of trying to figure out, well, which way do you kind of go? Not in a binary stance where we have to sit here and make a harsh decision of we will never write things down again. We will only, <laughs> we are only going to speak our stories and we'll have to remember them that way. But obviously in an age of media, that's impossible. Well, I guess really not. I guess that's kind of what we do. But anyway. So what you need to do is after you hear us. Uh, yeah, you have to recite the whole thing. talking. Yeah, you have to go and tell this to the next person you meet. Yes, you must. And then they must say it to the next person, and we will create our own <laughs> Uncanny County Museum living memory and eventually a language, mm-hmm. which will be pretty It's intense. really, it's, I, I think we're creating more yeah. of a tulpa, like a, a living, oh, a living yeah. entity within uh, the consciousness of all of the visitors to the Uncanny County Museum. That is interesting. I hadn't thought of that. We are creating the entity. We're creating a conversation. You know, uh, <laughs> oh, how, how, how influencer do we, how, of us. I know, really. We're starting in here. Pepsi sponsor us. Um, I, wa- <laughs> 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 I wonder I wonder how many people we'd have to get on board to make our own tulpa. Like, what's the ratio of people you need to like thought power? Hmm. Hmm. Minimum reactive tulpa. Uh, yeah. God, I, I don't <laughs> These know. These are the questions. I, I really don't know. Like, can a. Because I picture a, a collective thought. I picture like a school of fish or a flock mm. of birds. You okay, know? yeah. Like, that, that's, that's what I see. Ever since I read The Wonder of Birds, uh, uh. I, it, it's, it, it does make me look at a flock of birds like a, like a, a collective organism. Uh, so I I don't know like is a is a bird flock a tulpa? No, I don't think so. Hmm. I mean, it, or is it? What does bird slenderman look like? Slenderbird. <laughs> Slenderbird. It looks like a quetzalcoatlus. I guess that's just an egret. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> do other do do birds do birds find other types of birds unsettling? Because Ooh. there's a lot of birds that are just bird shaped. Uh, <laughs> But then, like, do you look at an egret? You look at an egret, and it's like, um, it's like the shadow people when you have sleep paralysis. (laughs) Oh my god, I didn't think of that. That's interesting. Probably Mm -hmm. right. I mean, they don't all look the same, and I think they or do. I guess they have to have self awareness, maybe. But probably Mm. not, because I guess if you're just on survival mode, anything different is immediately going to be a red flag. So. I they guess might, so, but pigeons, I, uh, pigeons can, they, they don't necessarily recognize their own reflection in mirrors, but they do recognize that the thing in the reflection is a pigeon. Um, <laughs> That's the most, it, a pigeon would say that, so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think, uh, I think African gray parrots have a certain level of uh, self-awareness of. Okay. Uh, I, I think uh, the really famous one, Alex, the gray parrot, oh. had some kind of understanding of self. Okay. But you would have to assume a bird looking at another bird species would be kind of like us looking at a orangutan or a chimpanzee. I like imagine, something that, yeah. Something that almost looks like you but isn't. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the, you know, a pigeon to a penguin is a big difference, and even an ostrich. I guess right. an ostrich to an emu is kind of similar, though. 
Yeah, ostriches and emus that they 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 probably get along. I think. Yeah, but then you throw a cardinal in the mix, and everything's getting weird and confusing. Oh yeah. Well, there's supposedly a problem with uh, people that raise ostriches. Ostriches ostriches apparently find humans very attractive. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, I hmm. I mean, if you look at it, an ostrich's thigh kind of looks weirdly human. I think. I, th- I think it's mainly because they're naked. They have naked thighs. I guess. I mean, I hadn't <laughs> thought of it that don't way. Get, but why are you looking at me like I I'm don't weird? know? It's just I'm just saying. <laughs> it's a little okay. <laughs> hmm, this is like the opposite of the glass conversation, where it's like, huh? It's just, uh, hmm. Okay. <laughs> um. Anyway, one yeah, day okay. we may decode the language of birds. Who knows? One day. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've always been interested in the language of orcas. I think that that's very fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it is lang- language is, is a curious thing. I've always found it really fascinating. Yeah. Well, we- I, I think I think first. Well, obviously, we need to convert these orcas to some Abrahamic religion. <laughs> Why? Uh, no, we and, do not. And, and then they'll start, they'll start writing down their language. <laughs> they'll start writing it down with the underwater on seaweed. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, God, what would we have done? We, we'd create our own downfall. Maybe it's, mm. I don't know. Could be interesting. Or. Ka. What? You said or, and I, I, finished, oh. I finished it for you. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh, what has this devolved into? Incredible. Um, uh yes, the yeah. Um the orc is well, well appreciate this, it. This this has this has been an interesting yeah, conversation. I think so. I think so. This I, I think definitely much more to cover here eventually when we when we talk about language. I mean, I think it's such an interesting topic. I I, I quite love it. I am just I wish I was better at actually speaking multiple languages and understanding mm-hmm. grammar better mm-hmm. and the Fun- function of that and syntaxes and all types yeah. of stuff. I just think that the how how language gets passed down through history and what and how it shapes the way we look at the world and think is incredibly fascinating. And oh yeah, also noticing now more that the that how interwoven ancient languages into our own modern day ones is incredibly mm-hmm. important and also you know it, it's there there is a tie there so it's important yeah. not to not to get attached to the idea of we need a binary language system like code and or we need universal art english as the only source of unifying mm. language so just as a heads up i think we can all I mean, benefit it could, to it, learn could also, it could also be nice if there was a language to identify uh pretentious people you do not want to speak with uh oh that, hmm. so maybe art speak does have its place you maybe know? it does i mean if anybody says gamunsta work you know what's going on you know? <laughs> you're like okay this guy over here jeez yeah yeah i mean you know i <laughs> i am i'm not necessarily against hyper specific words uh no i i'm i'm teasing i but. yeah yeah i i have had friends that were art historians and the thing that to understand about their stuff because there, there's a lot of critique of art history texts being a little heavy with um jargon the thing to understand is like you have to look at them as like artists of language that they are they are being asked to be specific and so they will be specific. Yeah, that's fair. 
um, hmm. as as they as they try to go about the project of art history. And I mean, you know, the this a lot of the stuff's important. It was th- this was also another fun fact I I, I forgot to tack in earlier. Uh, Champollion, um, he actually got out of military service. Oh, uh, for the the kind of later Napoleonic Wars, uh, before uh, the um, the monarchy was reinstated, hmm. uh, he got out of it because of his linguistic work. He argued oh, it wow. was the stuff he was working on was too important for them to draft him. Good for him. Okay, yeah. fair enough. You know. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm, what a mm-hmm. move! Wow. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, but yeah, thank you uh, all for stopping by the Uncanny County Museum today. Uh, mm. Let's see. What have you got going on uh, outside the museum, Joe? Well, I believe I still have my exhibition up at St. Kate's Arts Hotel in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I, it's my solo exhibition entitled Ephemeral Existence When Light Takes Form. So that's ending, I believe, August 28th. So if you haven't seen it and you're in the area or you want to go see it again, uh, feel free to do so. And I also have some music up streaming everywhere. My album or my album entitled Biomes is streaming on all streaming services and is available on Bandcamp. So you can check that out as well. Um, that's about it, I believe, at the moment. Have some. Oh, and uh, the upcoming exhibition at real tinsel is happening soon with my collective uh teleportal it's titled teleportal presents movement so uh there should be hopefully some uh social media presence very soon and we'll be talking about the exhibition so we're really looking forward to that mm-hmm. and also looking forward to some of the collaboration projects i have with zan in the works and some other art things yes, happening yes uh how about you zan what do you got going on um, nothing I can kind of announce just yet. Uh, like I said, I'm kind of working on some new paintings and stuff that hopefully I can start sharing on social media soon. Nice. Um, yeah. And just, uh, kind of keeping my ear to the ground about a couple of potential things going on here in Hudson Valley. Uh, if you or anyone, uh, that you know out there, uh, lives in Hudson Valley uh, and knows of some places possibly uh, as a music venue looking mm-hmm. for a certain band, uh, hit me up. Yeah. I would love to, I would love to chat about <laughs> a, a, cer- a certain project. Yes. Um, but yeah, other than that, uh, just, just making art as normal. Uh, nothing uh, too crazy to announce. Um, still waiting to hear back on when the catalog will be published for uh, the workshop I'm teaching next summer in Brassville, North Carolina at the uh, Campbell Folk School. But uh, that is uh, still in the works as far as I know. Um, that'll be August of next year. So, wow, a, a year from now, uh, almost. <laughs> Just crazy to think about. Uh, but I'll also be in and out of boston uh soon enough um oh so uh, exciting yeah yeah no it's it's crazy we're we're both uh masters of fine art now and both professors it is crazy professors of art oh man Mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. if you'd like to 
follow the museum after hours. We are at Uncanny Museum on Twitter and at Uncanny County Museum on Instagram. Uh, we have uh, a pretty big uh, milestone coming up. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. Our hundredth tour, which also coincides pretty closely with two years, two years. of this project. This might be one of the longest. <laughs> yeah continuous projects that either of us have ever worked it, yeah, on. Yeah, for me, it absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, but loving it so far. So. But yeah, we should also hopefully have some stuff out soon about celebrating that with everyone that's stuck with us all of this time. It's been a lot of fun. Um, yes. Yeah, yes. if you'd like to find me uh, after hours, I am at Xanasaurus on Instagram and Zanfred E. Mann on tiktok my website is zanpeters.com where i have a, a bunch of fine art up for sale and uh where can people find you joe i'm at josemino art on instagram and my website is josemino.art.com from the uncanny county museum i have been zan peters and i'm josemino Bye. Bye.